The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us today for a look at the week ahead in stocks and the ins and outs of thematic investing. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Jay Jacobs, U.S. Head of Thematics and Active Equity Exchange Traded Funds at BlackRock. Welcome, Jay and Ben, and thank you for joining me on Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be here. Very glad to have you. So, Jay, you're a newcomer here, so I'll explain how we work things. We usually start our Monday call with a look at the macro backdrop, interest rates, the economy, and lately Jay Powell's predicament. We all know what that is. The Fed has been trying for almost a year to cool inflation and the economy, but something isn't working. The economy seems hotter than ever this year. So, Curious, before we get into thematic investing, what is BlackRock's view on the path ahead for the Fed and for the economy, and what does it mean for investors? Well, it's a great question, and the reality is I think we're still learning. There's a lot of data coming out, which is really indicating what is the true trajectory of inflation here. Uh, you know, Earlier in the year, I think there was some excitement that we had turned the corner on inflation. We had gotten a couple good prints on the inflation side of things, and the market really started to lower its expectations for what both the uh, kind of terminal high rate would be for the Fed funds rate, as well as when we'd actually start seeing rates being cut again, which would be very supportive, not just for equities, but for growth stocks in particular. Now we've seen that inflation actually is probably higher than we thought. There's been some PCE readings uh, that have shown higher inflation. We've seen a very strong consumer in the U.S. market that is continuing to spend. Um, We do think ultimately uh, that will turn as we see some more weakening in the housing market and we see some more weakening of consumer balance sheets, which at some point will lead to the downturn in consumer spending and turn the corner on inflation. But that's likely pushed out a little bit further than people originally thought. And what that means is higher rates for a bit longer. And ultimately, that's going to favor um, kind of more value-oriented uh, aspects of the market and really kind of mean that investors have to get targeted with where they find growth opportunities. That makes sense to me. Ben, what do you think about the current talk about landings, hard, soft, or no landing for the economy? Well, I, I hate using those metaphors uh, for the economy <laughs> and for the stock market. We, we talk about them all the time. Um, I, I, I do. I, I think this is just a fascinating time to watch. You know, we've had these these massive rate hikes and um, we're still seeing what's uh, pretty much a, a strong economy outside of the areas that get impacted most by those uh, higher higher rates like uh, the, the housing market. Um, but I think it all uh, points to that there, there has there will be a recession down the road. The Fed's going to have to keep uh, raising rates and might take longer for the uh, the economy to get there. But uh, we have, I think, the most inverted yield curve since uh, 1981, if I'm uh, remembering correctly. And I think it just portends that at some point, we're going to have an economic slowdown that uh, is going to be meaningful. All right, we're going to banish landing from the vocabulary for the rest of the call. Sounds good. It does sound like you're both aligned. Now I want to get back to thematic investing. And Jay, I'm going to start by asking you to define your terms. 
what does BlackRock mean by the term thematic investing and how does that differ from sector investing as we know it? Thematic investing is really the process of identifying what are powerful macro level trends that are disrupting large parts of our economy or society. And then really looking at what are the stocks that benefit from the materialization of these trends. So we look across five different pillars. We look at disruptive technologies. We look at changing demographics and societal change. We look at climate change and resource scarcity, uh, emerging global wealth, and urbanization. All these are the five pillars of what we're calling these megatrends, these long-term stru long structural disruptions. And we create uh, funds and ETFs that are specifically designed to own the companies that benefit from something like the rise of cybersecurity within disruptive technology or the rise of electric vehicles within resource scarcity and climate change. How does this differ from sector investing? Um, sector investing is, uh, I would call it kind of the 1.0 version of targeted exposures. So if you think about a portfolio, investors may have really broad exposures buying the S&P 500 or Barclays Zag and kind of generally playing in these very big buckets and stocks and bonds. But we all know investors want to get more targeted from time to time because they want to access higher growth opportunities or they want to manage risk by overweighting certain parts of the market that are more defensive. You name it, there's a lot of reasons to get more targeted. But within growth, we found that distinct, uh, you know, specifically that just buying something like the tech sector is not really the best way of getting growth exposure. And this really came to a head during the pandemic where um, you know, we saw the economy really disrupted in very strange ways. We were all working from home. We were logging in remotely. We were using digital entertainment. We were not doing things in person. And simply buying a tech sector ETF did not really give precise exposure to the areas of the economy that were thriving versus the areas of the economy that were really lagging. But thematic ETFs did. They were really the best way to get exposure to cloud computing as an idea with people working remotely or gaming as people were entertaining themselves or even genomics as we were developing mRNA-based vaccines. So thematic investing that has been around for a long time really came onto the scene in a major way in the, in the pandemic as people realized we can get more targeted than, sector, than sectors and really find opportunities within the market that are exhibiting these long-term structural tailwinds. So what happens in the case of something like a work from home theme? What happens when the theme ends and and circumstances change? Does the, does do fund flows dry up? Does the fund pivot to something else? How does it work? Themes are always evolving. I have a little saying I say that's a little silly, but I say there's three stages of a three, of a theme. There's the dream, the theme, and the mainstream. The dream is it's an idea, it's an incredible concept, but it's not really investable, at least not in public equity markets. The theme stage is really in that sweet spot of there's a high growth runway ahead that we are excited about and we can get exposure to it. But at some point, electric vehicles just become vehicles. Uh, cloud computing just becomes computing, and it's no longer really as disruptive as it once was. In that case, it kind of uh, matures into the mainstream. It becomes an industry or becomes a sector. Eventually, you know, you do see that the global industry classification system, which manages kind of what's a sector, what's an industry and all that, they eventually kind of absorb these themes into their uh, classification system. So that's, for a thematic investor, that's a good thing. That means that they participated in that life cycle of the theme they can sell out of it as it kind of looks more like a general industry and look for the next new thing, which could have another 20-year tra uh, trajectory. So you're looking at long-term trajectories here. You're not looking at just a couple of years. 
Absolutely. The ideal theme is one that has a multi-decade opportunity ahead of it, uh, but that we see a near-term catalyst where we're going to start to see the theme really take off. That could be a new tech, a revolutionary new technology that really changes the game for that theme. It could be costs coming down to the point where consumers or businesses are more excited to buy this product. It could be a regulatory change where suddenly it's mandated that people have to do a certain thing a certain way, or you have to spend money to do something. Um, whatever the driver is, we do like to see those early catalysts because that's what really sets up the multi-year growth trajectory. So one catalyst you and I talked about last week was companies benefiting from fiscal spending tailwinds. And I wanted to explore that theme a bit. Why is it such an attractive investment arena and how long do you expect the benefits to last? Well, we it should be no surprise to listeners. We find ourselves in an inflationary environment and the Fed is raising rates. And that means the Fed is actively trying to reduce consumption. It's trying to make uh, investors or it's trying to make consumers more interested in savings and collecting yield in a savings account uh, than to spend money and add to aggregate demand in the economy. So companies that are really exposed to that, where if we see lower consumer spending, uh, are going to suffer. But we have another major consumer, actually probably the largest consumer in the world, which is the U.S. federal government. And the U.S. federal government is actually looking to not just uh, decrease spending, but uh, probably keep overall spending flat from 2022 to 2023 and increase it by about 4.5% going into 2024. So this means you're going to see a divergence between the true consumers and where the government is spending money. Our thesis is that the companies that are going to benefit from where the government is spending its dollars are really going to outperform those that are uh, more targeted at the individual consumer. So a couple areas where we see that opportunity. Uh, one is in infrastructure. So companies that own or operate infrastructure, as well as companies that are building infrastructure, they will, of course, benefit from the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act that passed in 2021. A lot of that money is starting to come out to fix bridges across the country, to fix airports, to fix roads, uh, to build new broadband systems. So we really like where that's going. And then secondly, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed last year, uh, that's providing tax credits to very specific industries like solar panel manufacturers and clean energy or electric vehicle manufacturers and battery producers. So we like that area as well because they're getting a lot of fiscal support from the U.S. government to increase their production and to get more consumer demand in the coming years. So one thing I want to ask, can you give us a couple of funds to play the theme? And while you do that, I'm going to ask our producer, Mary Chen, to put a list of some of these ETFs in our chat box. Absolutely. So starting with infrastructure, um, we have our fund IFRA, IFRA, um, which is investing in U.S. infrastructure companies, both the owners and operators of infrastructure, think about it like utilities companies, uh, as well as the companies that are building new infrastructure. That's construction engineering companies, that's materials companies that are really being called upon for these huge infrastructure projects like the Gateway Tunnel on the Hudson River in New York or, uh, you know, building the California rail system to connect uh, LA and San Francisco. Um, we also have uh, our electric and autonomous vehicles ETF. Uh, the ticker is iDrive, IDRV, and that's investing across the entire electric vehicle ecosystem. So not just car manufacturers. I think we all, you know, I'm a car guy. Many people listening are probably car people. Um, we can name the manufacturers. What's more interesting 
interesting beyond that, though, is who are the battery producers around the world? Who are the lithium miners? Who are the parts suppliers to those auto manufacturers? Because we really see a lot of opportunity across that ecosystem as we see more dollars being spent to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles. And so do I have to worry about um, the kind of factor exposure that I get when I play th- when I play themes? Um, do you end up taking uh, you know big weights in certain factors? You can, although if you look at thematic investing in the aggregate, it's a little more diversified than people may think. So the you know the, the high level thought is these are all high growth themes. If I'm investing in these uh, in these thematic ETFs, I'm going to be overexposed to growth over value or small caps over large caps, and maybe as a generalization that is true. But across those two different themes I just mentioned, electric and autonomous vehicles definitely skews more towards growth over value and a little bit more towards momentum and a little more small cap. But if you look at infrastructure as a theme, these are value companies. These are industrial companies that have been around for a long time, but are suddenly kind of benefiting from this fiscal tailwind. So it's not the case that every theme is going to have the same exposures. And in fact, if you are a value investor, that doesn't preclude you from having some thematic exposures in your portfolio. You just have to get choosy about which themes you're uh, comfortable with. So I wanted to ask you about the theme of tech staples, another one we talked about. You mentioned that you get much more impact if you buy segments of the tech sector. What does tech staples mean and why is it attractive now? I like to think of the technology space as a spectrum that at one end of the equation, you have kind of the what we're calling the tech staples. These are technologies that are proven. The products are being delivered to to consumers. They're likely to be profitable already and really kind of have this stability of a product that's in market. Um, At the other end of the spectrum, you have technological moonshots. These could be incredible new technologies, incredibly futuristic, potentially game changers, but there's a lot more uncertainty because the products might not be ready, the consumer base may not have adopted it yet, and they're still trying to figure out kind of what's the right product market fit. Um, In different uh, market environments, you might have a preference for tilting towards one or the other. When rates were really low, moonshots were in favor because there was basically free money. Companies were investing super aggressively in revolutionary technologies. You saw tons of money pouring into the venture capital space to fund these revolutionary ideas, and it was a very exciting time. In this economy, with higher interest rates, with economic uncertainty, um, people are cutting back in those moonshots. And I think it really behooves investors to focus on within technology, where are those cutbacks less likely to happen? In fact, where could there be growth within technology? Uh, Two areas that stand out to us in 2023, one is cybersecurity. So if you look across companies in the United States, we see headcount reduction, real estate footprint reduction. Companies are looking for where to cut costs. Uh, it does not seem like companies are going to be cutting their cybersecurity spend in 2023. In fact, they might be raising it. They might be raising it is what a lot of surveys are showing. And it makes sense, right? You know, this is, uh, you don't just need a security guard at your front desk anymore. You need to protect the firm any which way people could potentially um, uh, come into it. And that's increasingly digital. Uh, But the second one is robotics and artificial intelligence, which is a growthy theme. And there's certainly kind of a futuristic element to it. But what we see in 2023 with um, really low unemployment and still rising labor costs is that companies are looking for automation as a way to reduce costs. So there's been a lot of investment, in fact, a record year of investment in robotics to try to automate as much as possible. So we see cybersecurity and robotics as these uh, tech staples in 2023. That makes a lot of sense. 
Speaking of tech staples, I want to talk about a couple of tech, tech companies that are reporting earnings this week. And for that, I'm going to switch to Ben. Ben, we're going to hear from Broadcom and we're going to hear from Salesforce, which has been in the news a lot lately. Can you give us a sense of what's on tap from these companies? Sure. Uh, let's start with Broadcom. Um, it's actually been kind of a bright spot among uh, semiconductor companies. Um, you know, it's only up to 3.3% this year, but over the past 12 months, it's it's basically flattish. Um, when the, the SOX ETF, which is the, the semiconductor ETF, is uh, down around 14%. Um, so it's held up pretty well. Um, it's expected to report a profit of $10.18, um, and that's going to be up from $8.39. Um, so still growing earnings, still growing revenue. Um, and it seems to be um, better insulated from uh, the kind of slowdowns that other uh, chip companies are seeing, partially because uh, it is uh, very much in the core, what uh, Oppenheimer's Rick Schaefer calls the core cloud and infrastructure markets. Um, and that's really helped them to be able to have a better backlog than uh, many other companies. We also saw some pretty good earnings from, from Cisco, um, which also points to good things ahead for uh, Broadcom. So it looks like, um, you know, Broadcom heading to this print, uh, you know, there could be some upside there sitting on uh, some support at this moment, um, at both its 50-day uh, moving average um, and also just uh, um, a, a, a support line just around 580 or so. Um, so it's one that looks pretty interesting heading into the numbers. Um, Salesforce, as you said, has been very interesting just because um, there have been a lot. Uh, we've had activist investors going after it. Um, there are just a lot of things happening there. Um, and I thought uh, one of the interesting things happening, um, it, well, it, it is that uh, this is coming from Evercourse Kirk Matern, but he was pointing out that the company really has to embrace a lower level of revenue growth uh, in the near term, but to accelerate its margin expansion. So get the margins growing um, and to really focus on a free cash flow per share growth. Um, if you could do those things and really start thinking about, uh, you know, getting having more of that free cash flow, maybe even returning it to shareholders, the stock could do quite well. If the company doesn't embrace that, um, his words are it'll be stuck in the mud. Um, but I think that uh, the company really does seem to be heading in that uh, direction. Um, it seems to be kind of embracing the fact that it, it does need to change. Uh, Might have even been doing that before some of the activists were involved. So it's another one that looks kind of interesting, uh, especially because over the past uh, 12 months, it's been down about 22%. And that's even with a 22% rally this year. Um, so it's another one that's going to be very interesting to watch when it reports on Wednesday. All right. So also another of the Silicon Valley companies that's been doing a lot of layoffs, which is part of its change. As you yes, say. that it has. So another big theme this week is retailers earnings. Retailers, many of them are on a January fiscal year. Some of the biggest of the big box chains will report along with a lot of department stores. So Ben, take us down the aisles of the big box chains. What's on tap from Target and Lowe's and Best Buy? I mean, it's they've gotten some, um, you know, th that group got some bad news last week. Um, both, uh, I think it was uh, Walmart and Home Depot um, kind of disappointed uh, right, when they right when they came out last week. Um, I'm only vaguely aware of this. I was on vacation. Um, but, uh, you know, that sort of sets things up as uh, for, for the others as being, um, you know, in some ways that could be good news because, um, you know, you get so then the people sell off the, the bad news from uh, the other companies and it, it maybe sets things up better for uh, for the targets of the world. Um, Target is, is actually been a favorite of, of Barron's. We had made a stock pick uh, last year. 
um, it, you know, it still is fighting through all these issues that it's had in terms of um, its inventories, uh, some of its mix, um, because it is more uh, less about food and uh, more towards the stuff that people uh, don't seem to be buying as much these days. Um, you know, so that there could be, you know, some issues, especially as it talks about uh 2023. 20, uh, the stock right now is range bound. I think it's around uh, trading around $166 a share. Um, and that's been trading between 140 and 180 for a while. Uh, so it's one that maybe just remains stuck in place for a bit as it works through some of these issues. But it does uh, look like um, one that uh, because it is, um, it, it has been so good, if you can work through these issues, um, it really should outperform this year. Um, I, you know, we think that at Barron's and actually Jeffrey's analyst, Corey Tarlow, wrote the same thing uh, about the company heading into earnings. Lowe's is also an interesting one. Um, we saw Home Depot come out. Uh, they said that they're going to be spending uh, a billion, I think, in annualized uh, compensation for hourly associates uh, going forward. Um, and they actually saw the uh, uh, 2020 fiscal 2023 earnings uh, falling a bit. Lowe's uh, does have um, some self-help that it can do. Um, and that's could that's the thing that uh, really the Lowe's story has been about. For a long time, it has underperformed um, Home Depot. And um, the case has been that if they can be uh, better just uh, at operating, that it could sort of catch up. Um, it's, it's a cheaper stock. And I think heading into earnings, we're going to see if that thesis holds out. This is another barren stock pick and um you know we, we've been expecting the, the company to be able to weather a weaker home market um just because people are going to maybe stay in place and want to do some work on their houses even if they're not buying new homes and that you are going to have this self-help kick in so you know we've been pretty positive on it and we'll see if that plays out well um for its earnings when it reports on wednesday what about the department store companies? We're going to hear from Macy's, Nordstrom, and Kohl's as well. What sort of holiday season did they have and what sort of guidance are they going to offer? You know, it seems like the holiday season hasn't been great, um, though, you know, J.P. Morgan has pointed out that it looks like January turned out to be pretty well for all of them. Um, I think what's scary about Kohl's, Macy's, and Nordstrom, as you look at them, um, they're all uh, going to have much lower uh, earnings this year. For Kohl's, it's 97 cents when last uh, last quarter, uh, sorry, 12 months ago for the same quarter, it was $2.20. Uh, Macy's was $1.58 versus $2.45. Nordstrom is 67 cents versus $1.23. So they're all seeing a big drop in earnings. Um, and they're seeing a big drop you know, not a huge drop, but they're seeing a drop in sales as well. So this isn't just a question of uh, higher expenses squeezing margins, even as sales grow. But this is one where both sales and earnings are falling. Um, and, and so you know, they, they have been beaten up. Um, you know, the stocks are down a lot, um, particularly Kohl's, um, and that might uh, help things a bit. Um, but I think a lot of it is going to be what do they say about the year going ahead? And, you know, we, we still see that consumers are favoring, um, you know, services, you know, going out and doing stuff over buying stuff. And um, I think that could be a problem for um, all three heading into this earnings season as, as they look out into uh, over the rest of the year. So, Jay, do you have any thematic investments in in the consumer all this retail talk makes me think of that. 
We do, I would say not um, super directly, but the consumer plays a very large role in several different themes in terms of kind of where they're spending their time and money and uh, and where their attention is going. So, you know, we could look at something like uh, uh, we have kind of a, a, a digital life and, and home ETF, which talks about kind of connect, remote connectivity and how people are spending their time through digital entertainment. Uh, we just launched a metaverse ETF uh, two weeks ago, uh, looking at, um, you know, the companies leading in the design and build out of the metaverse, which is very much going to be consumer focused as well as corporation focused. So, can you give us um, the tickers for these funds? Sure. Uh, the uh, digital life ETF is IWFH. I work from home. Uh, that would be pretty clear. Um, and then the Metaverse ETF that we just launched is IVERSE. I V R S. Okay. We like our we like starting our tickers with eyes. If you can't tell. Got it. All right. And one more theme to talk about is that of healthcare innovation. We spoke about this a bit last week. Tell us what's within that theme. What kinds of innovation are you talking about? Well, the healthcare innovation is, you know, in some ways kind of a very unique animal from technology innovation because, you know, tech is really just limited by product feasibility. You know, can you, you know, does this product work? Do people want it? Whereas, um, you know, medicine has this additional element of a, of a really, uh, you know, significant regulatory uh, hurdle that anything has to really clear to be able to be, you know, ultimately monetized and sold in the United States. So, you know, what we look at when we look at the healthcare innovation space is, you know, where are we seeing a lot more activity in kind of early phase trials um, that are showing some success? Because that's really a forward-looking indicator of some of these will be the new drugs that are really revolutionary going forward. Um, that in particular has been accelerated by the pandemic because we saw really um, mRNA as a technology burst onto the scene for COVID vaccines. What we're now starting to see is phase two, phase three trials using mRNA vaccines, not for COVID, uh, but for other use cases like HIV. Um, we actually just saw one for skin cancer last week, uh, which received kind of this designation as a breakthrough drug, and a, it'll receive kind of an accelerated regulatory review going forward. So there's really been this almost kind of Cambrian explosion of use cases of mRNA-based technology uh, to treat different ailments. And we think that's an incredibly exciting uh, drug pipeline for 2023 and beyond if we see these successful trials. So what sort of role does thematic ETFs play within a broader portfolio? What percent of a portfolio do you think should be allocated to them? Should they be the largest proponent of equity ETFs? What do you think? It's a great question. You know, portion. Yeah. I, obviously, you know, no, no two portfolios are exactly the same. Um, you know, at its heart, thematic investing is looking for growth opportunities, no matter where they lie, no matter what part of the economy, no matter what part of the of geographically where they are. It's really agnostically looking for those long-term growth opportunities. So where that really aligns with investors are, first of all, investors that have a long-term time horizon that can participate in that growth. Uh, and secondly, investors that are willing to kind of take on that uh, growth risk, if you will. This is a different type of risk for portfolios. We call it thematic risk, which is really the risk of whether or not this theme plays out. Um, investors that have that long-term time horizon and risk appetite may want that risk. Uh, investors that are in retirement and really playing it safe and uh, more focused on a steady income stream, probably not the best use case. So, um, you know, generally, I would say younger uh, investors who have that long-term time horizon and that risk tolerance are kind of a better fit. 
in terms of how big to size these, you know, again, every portfolio is a little different. You know, we've seen people use 10, 15% of their equity exposure and put it into kind of a thematic bucket uh, where they might diversify across three, four or five themes so that they're not just looking at technology stocks or healthcare stocks, but, you know, getting a mix of tech, healthcare, infrastructure, uh, you name it, and diversifying across themes. Well, this is a theme, so to speak, that we haven't talked too much about on Barron's Live. So I'm glad you're sharing all of this with us today. We have a batch of listener questions that are somewhat related. I'm going to pose this one from Fred. Do you think that Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund is a thematic fund? Well, I can't speak too directly about other people's funds. I mean, I think the reality is that we see disruptive technology as one of our key pillars of of, uh, of megatrends. And so there's a lot of different ways to play disruptive technology. You can look at active funds, and we have several that are looking within you know disruptive technologies and trying to get exposure to innovation. You can look at index funds, which are looking at specific segments within technology, like cybersecurity or robotics, and giving that exposure. Um, but really, you know, the 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 overarching principle here has to be, is it, a long, is it designed to participate in long-term structural disruption? And, you know, many technology funds that are bottoms up, you know, are, are attempting to do that. Hal has two questions that I think are interesting. One is, what about defense as a theme? Where would that fit? I'm sorry, defensive investing? No, defense as in defense. Ah, oh, defense. Yeah, so uh, I think that's a really interesting question. We're actually, one of our fastest growing funds this year has been defense and aerospace, um, ITA. And uh, look, for obvious reasons, we see rising geopolitical risk. There's been some reindustrialization efforts in the United States, which would benefit uh, defense companies. Um, obviously continued conflict in Eastern Europe. Um, so what we would say is this is a subsector. This is actually a sector that is specifically carved out by the global industry classification system. But more important to investors is if they see geopolitical risk as a long-term structural theme, using a tool to get exposure to that is thematic investing, even if it's a subsector fund. So absolutely investors that are looking at the long-term and see uh, the need for more defense spending or the likelihood of increased defense spending uh, could use a defense and aerospace ETF as a thematic exposure in their portfolio. And is there one that you have at BlackRock? ITA. Yep. That's our, that's, we've brought in, there's almost uh, $800 million have come into the fund just uh, this year alone. It's absolutely been one of the faster growing segments. Okay. Then Hal's other question is, is there an income theme? I would say no. That's it, it's not a hundred percent true. I mean, there are themes that can have higher yields than others, but the objective of thematic investing is generally not to provide a level of income, but to provide a uh, you know really access to growth. Now, within that, there's plenty of themes that yield zero percent because they're investing in really you know tech companies that are not interested in paying dividends at this stage in their uh, in their trajectories. But again, going back to infrastructure, where these are older companies, they've been around, they have you know more predictable cash flows, and they are distributing that to shareholders. So you can see a you know a bit of a pickup in yield for those types of stocks over you know just the yield of the S and P 500. But there it's, are plenty of ways to play income investing, and we've certainly had guests in that area on Barron's Live, and we write about it a lot in Barron's. But it's an interesting question in the context of thematic investing. 
So we had a question from Neil, and I'll put this to you and to Ben. Do you see opportunities in recycling electric car batteries? Are there any companies in your thematic funds that fit that category? It's a really interesting space, and there's absolutely the case for needing to step up the investment and the technology in battery recycling. Um, where we are right now is that the demand for batteries is really outstripping the supply of degraded batteries. So if you think about how many electric cars are being built, and it's now almost you know 10% of car purchases around the world are electric, um, there's just there's a massive explosion in the need for lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, these you know these raw materials that go into producing batteries. But you don't have the the previous generation of electric vehicles that are now being you know sent to the car crusher and they're taking out the batteries and recycling it. They just they haven't been around long enough. So there's um, I think there's absolutely an opportunity in developing that technology, but there's actually not a lot of supply of depleted batteries that can go to those recycler uh, recycleries right now. That's a fair point. Not yet. Ben has Al Root, whom you work with a lot, written much about that. Not a not a ton. I mean, I think the um, the, the most the closest I think I've seen him write about, and this is just uh, off the top of my head, has just been with I think it's Neo in China, um, where they almost uh, you, they basically have swappable batteries, so you don't own really own the battery. I think you rent it, if I'm remembering correctly, and uh, you go in and swap them swap them out. So it's I, I believe a step in that kind of direction where you know it's it's knowing that these batteries are going to need to be recycled and they're, they're they're trying to play in that direction there's a pretty long life cycle to a battery so you know when we talk about kind of you know when will these batteries be ready to be recycled i would say you know generally it's expected about a 10-year life cycle for you know a state-of-the-art uh, lithium nmc battery which is usually what's going into electric vehicles these days and even after that 10 years doesn't mean the battery immediately needs to get you know broken apart and the and the parts recycled you know often what you actually see is those batteries they're not as powerful as they used to be they're not going to power a car going zero to 60 in three seconds um, but they're actually perfectly fine for attaching to a house and turning into a backup for your refrigerator if there's a power outage. So in a sense, that's still a form of recycling, but it doesn't actually require much in terms of repurposing the battery. So that could potentially extend it another 10 years. And then all of a sudden you're looking at a 20-year uh, life cycle for a battery. That's a pretty long time until it needs to get broken apart by a recyclery. I think we could do a whole call on battery recycling. There's a lot to unpack there. So what about AI as a Theme. How would you play that within your portfolio? Well, we have our uh, Robotics and Artificial Intelligence ETF, IRBO, another, another I uh, ticker for you there. Um, look, that's been one of our fastest growing themes this year as well. And I think it's no surprise. Uh, generative AI as a topic has exploded onto the scene. We've seen you know 100 million users sign up for ChatGPT in, in two months, the fastest growing platform of all time. We're seeing people look at generative AI for search engines, for images, for music and sounds. Um, it's really fascinating, you know, as saying earlier, we look for the catalyst of a long-term theme. We are in the heart of that catalyst for AI right now. Uh, the technology has gotten to the point where people are blown away by how powerful it is. And then on top of that, society has gotten to the point where we're ready to accept it as a technology. People want to interact with it. They're trying to think through, how can I use this in my everyday life? How can I use this in my business? Um, we're seeing several companies coming out with um, you know, competitors in the generative AI space. So um, you know, just like we were talking about this you know, Cambrian explosion within the mRNA-based vaccine space, we're seeing something very similar in AI right now with you know, 
lots and lots of major companies and organizations uh, focused on this uh, this AI arms race. Uh, and 2023 has really proven to be the inflection point for that. Could be one of the longest running themes ever. Well, you know, you, you, sometimes you have to play out kind of like what's the end state of this theme, right? I, you know, I say maybe 10, 20 years or is the life cycle for an average theme, uh, you know, until we reach, uh, in theory, I guess, singularity where AIs are just as smart as humans, um, the theme will continue in perpetuity. If you look backwards, um, the concept of robotics has been around for, uh, you know, 85 years. Um, the term robot was coined, you know, 85 years ago. The Turing test, which is the famous test to determine whether uh, a computer is a human or not, uh, was created in 1950. So it's been almost 75 years since that concept has been around. And the modern robotics industry, which really formed in Japan to support its um, automobile manufacturing ambitions, really came to play in the 1970s. So another, you know, 50 years since then. So this, these, these themes are long term. They really they take a long time to go from concept to really having a disruptive impact on the economy. Fascinating conversation and a lot to think about today. I'm afraid we have to end it there, but I want to thank you, Jay, for joining me. And Ben, I want to thank you as always. And Thanks, thank, our, thank our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live. We'll have a level up session, excuse me, a level up session on wealth building. Barron's associate editor, Reshma Kapadia, will speak with Holly Newman Croft, a managing director at Newberger Berman, about adapting the strategies of ultra high net worth investors to save, invest, and preserve wealth in retirement. This is part of our level up series. Thanks again, Jay and Ben, and thanks again to our listeners. Stay well, everyone. My theme is have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.